Well, good morning, church. I hope you all are well rested. I rested well last night because the night before, I shared a room with about 10 middle school boys at the woods, and so I did not sleep well, but it was good to be out there, and it's good to be with you this morning. Um, We are going to continue our series through the book of Revelation, and I'm going to be reading from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17. It will be up on the screen, and if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along there. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Listen now to the words of God. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black like sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, now that you would give us understanding in this vision that you gave to your servant, John, that we might be encouraged and that we might remember, Lord, that you are the God who is coming in his wrath. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the things I like to do when I preach at times is just catch us up to where we're at so we can follow the flow of John's revelation. And of course, I think uh, if any book we need to remember where we're at, uh, it's John's revelation, because this for many people can be somewhat confusing. And so let me give us a recap. In the first chapter, you remember, John has been given a vision, and in verse 10 of the first chapter, remember, John said that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard behind him a loud voice like a trumpet, commanding John to write down the things that he saw in a book, and then send it to the seven churches. And then in verse 19, Jesus, who is this voice, because it is explained to us there in the first chapter, says again to John, write these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So we're going to see John is going to get a series of revelations. And so after the things that happened there in chapter two and three, which if you remember are John's instructions 
to the seven churches that Jesus told him to write to. So the first century Christians in those churches were receiving Jesus' instructions after this great vision of Jesus himself was given to John. And I think what Jesus is saying to the church, look church, I am the Lord of the church, follow my commands. That's the first vision and those seven churches are receiving those instructions. So after John writes down what he was told to write down by Christ after this first vision, we enter into chapter four. And after this, or as John writes uh, there in verse one, John says, after this, all the things that had just happened in chapters one through three, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, the voice of Christ, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And then John says again in chapter four, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was in heaven with one seated on the throne. We know this is a depiction of God. In verse eight of chapter four, we find that four living creatures are worshiping God and they sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the almighty who was and is and is to come. And so these creatures are worshiping God because he is eternal. At the end of that chapter, if you remember in chapter four, the elders fall down and they too ascribe glory and worth to God and they do so on the basis of God, that God is the creator. They say he created all things and because of his will, they existed and created. And so this great heavenly scene is God being worshiped. And then... We enter into chapter five and John sees this. He sees a scroll in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne and then an angel proclaims with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scrolls and break the seals? And then John says he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain who took the scroll. And of course the lamb is Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and it's only him who is worthy to open the scroll and pull off these seals. This is going to be important. And so what I think we have here in chapters four and five is the heavenly declaration of Christ's victory through his death and resurrection, which is now being celebrated in heaven. And so if you go back to chapter one in verse 17, when John sees Jesus, he falls at his feet as though dead, but Jesus lays his right hand on John, okay, and he tells John, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. Christ has authority. He, he told John that in the first chapter. Christ has authority on earth over the church. And now we have this heavenly scene. Christ is the king of heaven. And we're going to see that these seals that we have been reading about in chapter 6 demonstrate Christ's authority over the earth. And so the heavenly records reflect this song in heaven, this new song about Christ. And the new song is sung first by the four living creatures and the elders, and they sing to Christ, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And then in verse 12, those, they're joined by a myriad of angels. And then if you read in verse 13 at the end of chapter 5, every creature in heaven on earth is singing this song to the king of heaven. The book of Revelation is meant to give us a clear picture that Christ has authority in the church and over the earth. And we need to remember that, especially as we come into chapter 6. We see that it's the king of heaven and earth is the only one who is worthy to open these seals. Jesus is the lamb that is worthy. And we need to understand that from heaven's perspective, King Jesus is victorious. And the reason we need to understand that is because the outworking of his plan here on earth sometimes leads us to think that things are out of control. Chaos is happening all around us. And why is that? Because last week, Mike Jaderston took us through the first four seals that Jesus opened up. We see conquest at the hands of evil rulers. We see violence and bloodshed amongst people. We see famine and scarcity and ultimately death. All things brought about by these four horsemen of the apocalypse. But if John's readers in the first century, along with John's readers today, that is, if the church throughout the ages would just believe that those things brought about by the four horsemen function as the Lord's weapons against lands and cities that defy his authority, these things happen between the two advents of Christ, his first coming and second coming. If we believe these are Jesus's divine edicts over the earth, then we can rest assured that the things that many people interpret as chaos are actually a part of God's redemptive plan for history. On Friday, the New York Times shared reports coming in from the Ukraine that they're almost fully surrounded by hostile forces. A week before that, Forbes reported that nations around the world still continue to protest China for their human rights violations, primarily against the largest minority group there, the Uyghur people. Over the past two years, we have seen a plague sweep this world, killing millions, not to mention the day-to-day trials that we as individuals and families go through. I myself have a brother-in-law who's about to end almost seven weeks of radiation. It's been difficult. Many of you have similar stories But as I think about all that that's going on in the world, brothers and sisters, I think of the Lord's words to the disciples the night before he was to be crucified. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And this is how we should read the book of Revelation. Christ has the keys to Hades and death. He has authority over the earth and these seals function as his edicts of the things that must happen before he comes. And so now as we come to the fifth seal, this is another one of King Jesus's edicts that must come to pass before he visits the earth in judgment. And here we read, 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so John, in this vision, he sees the souls of the martyrs, not their bodies, indicating to us that they are without body because the day of the resurrection has not yet happened. When we die, we are absent from the body, but we are present with the Lord. And so this is why John sees their souls. And of course, John describes them as being under the altar on account of the fact that they had been slain because of the word of God. And so if we remember the song that was sung in the previous chapter regarding Jesus, the lamb that was slain, we're likely going to connect the fact or, or going to connect the dots. If we worship a lamb who is slain, it may come to pass that you too will be slain. And so we're not surprised that this vision helps us to understand that there has been an appointed number of martyrs to the church throughout history. In 2019, Open Doors USA, a ministry that is devoted to serving the persecuted church, reported that from October 31st, 2017 to November 1st, um, 2018, that one in nine Christians around the world suffered some form of high-level persecution. That year, 2,600 Christians were detained, arrested, or imprisoned without trial. 1,200 congregations or church buildings were attacked and an average of 11 Christians a day were killed for their faith. In 1996, I read of a a young man who was numbered amongst the martyrs. His name was Stanley, and he had just graduated from Palenberg Bible School in Jakarta, Indonesia. Shortly after he graduated, he received the call of the Lord to go to Mentawi Island, there in Indonesia, a small remote island. Many who lived there practiced witchcraft associated with the occult, also mixed with a little bit of Islam. Stanley was bold in his preaching. After preaching, every time calling the folks of that island to receive Christ and also to burn their idols. Well, one day, one of Stanley's recent converts was seen publicly burning one of his idols, and this made people very angry. The authorities were called. They didn't arrest the man burning the idols. Rather, they arrested Stanley. As soon as the pastor of the Bible school, Pastor Sui, heard of Stanley's arrest, he went to the jail to visit Stanley. Unfortunately, by the time Pastor Sui got there, they had already transferred Stanley to a prison And it was only a few days later that uh, Pastor Sui was able to find Stanley in one of these prisons. But it had been too late. Stanley had been beaten severely and was in a coma. Pastor Sui did what he could. He prayed. He tried to encourage Stanley, who really couldn't hear. And shortly after that initial visit by Pastor Sui, 
Stanley went to be with the Lord. From an earthly perspective, this seems chaotic, out of control. Why is this happening? But brothers and sisters, we need to remember in the heavenly courts, the Lord Jesus has opened this seal. He has chosen for his name to be known among the nations by appointing some, like Stanley, to martyrdom. In fact, the very writer of this book, John, knew that some would be appointed. Do you all recall the question that James and John had for Jesus in Mark 10? In fact, if you read Matthew's account, James and John, the sons of thunder, were actually accompanied by their mom to ask Jesus a question. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. James and John is, every, is like every other young pastor or missionary who wants glory but no suffering. And Jesus remarks back to them after their question, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized? And in this, our Lord is referring, are you able to suffer the way I am about to suffer? And of course, in their ignorance, they say, we're able to do that. And Jesus says now, prophesying to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 12, you'll find that Luke reported for us that King Herod had James killed by the sword. And if you remember in Revelation chapter 1, John introduces himself this way, I, John, your brother, partner in tribulation and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was called to the island of Patmos on account of the word of God. This is why the martyrs are being slain, on account of the word of God. And so Jesus himself foretold the persecution and the the death of James and the persecution of John because this is a part of how God is going to glorify himself in the earth. It is not by accident, brothers and sisters. We must understand that the martyrs serve as the Lord's gracious reminder to the church that the call of the gospel is unto death. All of us are called to die, though all of us will not be called to give our lives. And for the church today, particularly in the West, the example of the martyrs ought to humble us and keep us from thinking that we can package our Christian faith with some sort of fresh new innovations that will just make people want to follow Christ. I've never seen a church in America adopt a theme of persecution and martyrdom as a strategy for church growth. And while I'm not suggesting it would even be appropriate for the church to adopt such a theme, We need to remember that there's a certain truth regarding martyrdom that was actually penned by the early church father Tertullian in his defense of the Christian faith titled Apologeticus that he addressed to the provincial governors of the Roman Empire at the end of the second century. And there he writes these words. We, that is Christians, are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you 
can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves and criminals. And when they find out why we die, they join us. Tertullian understood, as should we, that there is something about martyrdom that encourages the faithfulness of God's church. I believe the reason the martyrs strengthen and encourage our faith is because their deaths remind us of the Lord whose blood was spilled on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins. Their deaths remind us of the one who is willing to give his life in exchange for ours. The martyrs remind us of the love and sacrifice of our Lord in succumbing to the powers of evil in order that he would subdue and overcome evil. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor at my previous church, I was asked to speak to um, a four-day camp of fourth through sixth graders. Each day, I was asked to give two messages, morning and evening. And before I went, as I was doing my planning and preparation, I decided that after the end of each message, I would read a story from the Book of Martyrs. I was a bit hesitant I tried to soften language that would have been too violent or gruesome, but over the week, the high school leaders who were there accompanying the fourth through sixth graders say, Ben, their favorite part of your messages is when you share the story of the martyrs. We hide too much from our children today because we believe that these things are chaotic and things are out of control, and yet the martyrs provide us with such encouragement giving their lives, encouraging us to continue to fight the good fight. The fact that the martyrs stand as a shining example for the church doesn't take away the fact that the pain and great injustice committed against them does not exist. It does. In John's vision, the souls of the martyrs recognize this, the ones who had been slain, and they cry out to the Lord, How long, Lord, how long will you wait before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so we we look at their example, and we too, friends, we need to cry out for justice on behalf of the martyrs today. We need to pray for them. We need to share their stories. I would encourage you even today to put them on your list of prayers. Pray for them daily, maybe weekly or monthly but pray for the persecuted church. They need our prayers. Prayers are one of the main means by which God accomplishes his purposes here on the earth, and so we should pray for them. And in this vision, after this prayer goes up, what are they told? They're told to rest a little longer. They're given the white robe, which is symbolic of their victory and of Christ's righteousness, and then they're instructed to rest a little longer. In essence, they are told to be patient. Be patient. The day of your vindication is coming, but it will not come until when? Until the last appointed martyr on earth 
dies. So be patient. Now as we come into the final seal that is going to be opened here in verse 12, we see that the martyr's day of vindication is coming upon the earth. It reads, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're reading the book of Revelation on your spare time and you come to language like this that is wholly unfamiliar to you, just remind yourselves that there's likely somewhere else in Scripture that you can go to that will give you insight as to what this language means. This language that John is giving us is the language of the prophets. Earthquakes, the sun becoming black, the moon becoming blood, stars falling from the sky, the sky vanishing, and mountains and islands being removed is how the prophets foretell of God's coming judgment. Ezekiel prophesied similar words over Egypt in Ezekiel 32. Isaiah prophesied similar words over Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. And the Lord Jesus himself prophesied similar words to his disciples regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem found in Matthew chapter 24. And what we are seeing here as the scroll is being opened, that the same destruction that came to those nations prophesied by these prophets is coming to all nations at the end when the full number of martyrs is complete and the time of the martyr's patience is over. It's at this time that their prayers are answered. And as one author and pastor said, as we see this language of darkness coming, it's about to be lights out. And the song that was sung earlier was a great depiction of what's going to happen. The day of wrath. In the final three verses show us what this day is like. We're told that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks. Listen to what they say. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? I don't know much about the foreign affairs of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. I've been trying to listen about how they're getting to where they're at. Regardless of what I know, I'm sure right now that many in the Ukraine are afraid. As I mentioned earlier, the reports are that hostile forces are almost fully surrounding that country. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, in that moment, what do you think would bring the Ukrainians hope? What might provide them with some comfort in the face of what quite possibly could lead to their deaths? Perhaps the news of a nation whose commitment to true justice and whose military strength is infinitely greater than the imminent threat that is currently surrounding their borders 
and would administer true justice in due time would provide them with some hope and some comfort. Unfortunately, we don't know their fate. We should pray for them. But brothers and sisters, we do know the fate of the church and of the world on this day. In the opening of the sixth seal, the Lord is going to vindicate his people, especially the martyrs. The Lord, who is supremely good, is going to unleash his wrath on the world. And lest you think the wrath of God is something to be embarrassed about, the wrath of God is his supreme commitment to his holiness and his goodness, because as a good father, he doesn't look at the evil on the world and do nothing. No, he judges it and he deals with it. And as the church, since we know this, we must commit ourselves as the body of Christ here at Eastminster to preaching the gospel because the day of wrath has not yet come. But this is the only plan of escape for a dying world. We must remain faithful to the commission that God gave the apostles to obey everything that Christ has commanded, to go into the world And we do this with the great examples of the martyrs. I told you earlier about the story of Stenley, who died preaching the gospel on Mintawi Island. Well, his death had a great impact. In the next few days, seven of his fellow Bible school students visited the superintendent of that school requesting that they be sent to preach in the same place that Stanley preached. His death also impacted many from his hometown. 53 people from his hometown made decisions to attend that same Bible school. And upon graduation, seven of them went to that same place as well. And two of those graduates were Stanley's mom and his sister. Somebody asked Stanley's mom, are you not afraid to die? And she answered back, why should I be afraid to die? This was a woman who knew the king of heaven, the one who has authority in the church and over the earth. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, our God. Let us take comfort in him.